All right. Uh, again, another morning midrosh, uh, and we um, you get to pick the topics, you get to ask the questions, and we'll just kind of see where the Lord and the Holy Spirit wants to take it. And generally, the question you ask is very edifying to other people. They just didn't have the courage to ask it, so... Uh, and uh, so we can have a good time. So let me start with a word of prayer. We'll commit the time to the Lord, and then uh, let's uh, get into it. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for another beautiful, bright day, for the heavy dew, Lord. And uh, it's mindful, Lord, that you tell us that the remnant of Israel in the last day will be like the dew from the heaven. And, uh, Lord, it's wonderful to see the dew this morning and a reminder of your faithfulness to all of us. So we thank you for that. We commit this time now to you and to your kingdom and uh, use it to increase your kingdom, Lord. We ask in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right. Again, I'm going to try to be faithful and repeat the questions so we can get it recorded for the programs. Yes, sir. Yes. Yes, uh, the question has to do with uh, anointed leaders and anointing of leaders and things like that. One of the uh, lessons that the Messiah taught the disciples had to do with leadership models. And by the way, there are different models of leadership um, and power and authority. Uh, knowledge is a power and you have a person who comes in who has the knowledge of a lot of things that projects a, a power or an authority because he's an expert on that subject sometimes it's a position you know uh, oh he's the CEO he's the vice president of such and such that's called positional authority um, a rabbi is a, is a titled position of authority well what the Lord taught was he said, call no man father, call no man rabbi, call no man teacher. And the idea, really what he was saying was, there is no such, there, there are such things as teachers and rabbis and, and leaders and so forth. But what he's talking about is, don't follow the authority model of those things. Submit to and follow the authority model of the Messiah. He is the anointed one. And being anointed by God to go and do something is a whole different kind of leadership model and authority model than the ones men come up with. You know, that's the authority of God. That's, it comes directly from the Lord. He, he anoints you to a task. You have the authority of representing Him to do so. Now, the Messiah came. If you remember, He never once said, Oh, oh I'm the Messiah. Why? That's a positional authority. That's a title. He wasn't using that authority. He was using the authority of the anointed one. And so when he read from Isaiah 61 and, and he made reference, he said, these words are now fulfilled within your hearing. That's about the anointed one. And that's the reason why the people reacted so strongly to it. They got the message. Um, and when the... Uh, uh, when he was at his trial, and they asked, well, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? Well, then he turned around and he said, well, you, you've already said it. You know, titles are said by others. They're said by others to describe, but that isn't the leadership model that we're to use. Um, so when I come to you and I say, well, uh, you guys should listen to me. I'm, I'm the director of Lion of Land Ministries. Well, that's meaningless, you know. And, um, well, I'm an elder. Well, I don't care what you are. Maybe that guy's a plumber, you know, so that guy's a carpenter. That guy's a truck driver. So what? You know, that's not a, that's not a model of leadership. But when you can see a person comes before you and they're anointed by God, you see them energized and empowered by the Spirit of God, then it's okay to say, well, he's a teacher, or he's a leader. You know, that's fine to say that. But you be moved by, and you submit to the authority of God, not men. Not the title of men. That's what the Messiah came teaching. 
And that's a very, very important lesson for leaders to learn. Uh, you know, your knowledge, you know, your academics and so forth is not your authority base. That's not how you should be ministering and so forth. And by the way, anybody that's going to college and has got those academic credentials, within two years after they graduate, they're obsolete. You do know that. Within two years, a Ph.D., his entire academic training is obsolete. He has to have kept up with it to even be it to be it caught up with it. Uh, so it's just it's foolishness, it's vanity, uh, you know, to assert titles. You know, I always use the example of it. what would you think of a guy? He comes in, you meet him, you hey, his name is John. Hey, John, how you doing? He said, What do you do? He said, well, I'm a plumber. I said, Oh, great, that's wonderful. And, and, and then you say, well, John? And he said, oh, you can't call me John. You have to call me Plumber John. <laughs> That's no different than some guy standing up in your midst and says, oh, you need to call me Rabbi. You must call me Rabbi Monty. It's nonsense. It's nonsensical. I may be a rabbi because I'm... A master teacher on Torah, but that you you would be giving me that honor, that esteem to do that, right? Okay. Yes, sir. When it comes to what? Okay, so your question is a follow-up to the authority part of the model, and somebody suggesting there should only be one, one authority and so forth. Well, uh, welcome to rabbinical Judaism. That's how the rabbis think. But they just use the democratic process, and the chief rabbi is the one who says, okay, I'm the final word. Okay? Um, the final word would be the Messiah and would be God. And anybody asserting themselves as being in the hierarchy is usurping his authority. I'm just a servant of the Lord. You know, I'm submitted to the Lord. I'm going to give you my best judgment as to what would be the answer of a particular thing, but I'm not the ultimate answer on it. He is. And maintaining that humility is what keeps you out of conflict with other brethren. Because if every brother takes that attitude, then nobody's stepping over each other and, and you, there's not a hierarchy you have to appeal to. Let just basic respect and love of the brethren be the guide for how we coordinate our activities. We should not be asserting authority over anyone. Um, and Now, I do have authority over my children until they're grown and established their own houses. Uh, but you should never be usurping the authority of the house. And it goes from your individual house up to the big house of the Lord. And the Lord is the Father. And He's the one with the ultimate authority. Uh, within brethren, within a community, if they get into this hierarchical uh, kind of thing, they're just making the mistake that uh, Judaism has made, they're making the same mistake the church fathers have made. Uh, they're thinking like men. We all answer to the Lord. Um, we all answer to the Lord. That's, that's the, where the authority is really at. By the way, the scripture tells us that when the Messiah comes back, he's going to gather up all authority and give it back to the Father. There will be no hierarchy in the millennial kingdom. There will be those who are great and those who are least because of their obedience, but the the Father will have all of the authority. You know, for a matter. Yes, ma'am. Multitude of counselors is the book says there is wisdom. Yes. Safety. Yeah, the the comment is the multitude of counselors, Proverbs tells us there's safety in a multitude of counselors. We should be willing to listen to the counsel of many. One of my favorite verses on that I learned as a young man, Proverbs 20, verse 5, it says, um, Counsel in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. 
And so what it is, I'll receive a lot of counsel from, and there shouldn't be any problem with receiving, but it's like dipping your bucket into a deep well. Go down there and get the good, cool water. Bring that out. Hey, Titus, it's you. Hi. That's my grandson. And he's going, what's that? You know, he's referring to me. Uh, but, um, and this has been, you know, I, I will just tell you, as a spiritual law, it's been proved out many, many times. If you're weighing a decision, you're considering, you should never be afraid to allow people to offer counsel to you. But what you should do is be wise enough to say, well, I'll take a sip of it and I'll see if I like that or not. And then make your decision. And um, by the way, if somebody gives you counsel and you don't follow it and they get upset with you, they never were giving you counsel. They were directing you. Okay, so uh, if the person comes and gives you counsel, doesn't like your decision, stop using them as a counselor. They're just trying to direct you. Okay. Back in the back. Right. Uh, so the question is about the new people we have come in the camp and what's the general counsel, what's the general advice that we offer to them. Um, first and foremost, the camp where we're at, we're observing one of the feasts of the Lord. There are many feasts of the Lord. And there is a much greater teaching or understanding that comes with each of those. But let me go ahead and summarize it for you real quick. It's all about the Messiah. It's all about us growing and understanding who the Messiah is, what the Messiah has done for us, and what the Messiah is going to be doing. And the, the bottom line on this is we're all uh, creatures that basically came out of the earth. I mean, we were formed out of the out of the elements of the earth. Uh, Adam is the short version of Adama, which Adama is the earth, so Adam means out of the earth. Okay, we were made out of the earth. And mankind, everything was going great. You know, Adam had the best job in the world. He's working for the Lord, had this little gardening job. You know, it was wonderful. Got to eat anything he wanted to eat except one particular thing, and he blew it. And as a result... Uh, we're all here as a consequence of that. Have you ever heard the, the statement about that uh, we're all made in the image of God? That's a myth. Adam was made in the image of God. But since Adam, we're made in the image of Adam. And the Messiah sat down and had that conversation with Nicodemus one night and he said, and, this, and Nicodemus is a great teacher and a ruler in Israel, spiritual ruler. And he says, well, don't you understand you have to be born again? And Nicodemus is going, what are you talking about? What do you, what do you mean born again? And uh, he was trying to explain that you're in the image of Adam and Adam died. And if you want to beat that system and not just follow the footsteps of Adam... You have to be born again. You have to be born in the image of God. Now, that's where we come into the spiritual realm. It's not physical. It's spiritual. And for a lot of people that are coming in new, uh, you know, especially people that haven't had a previous spiritual experience, that's a whole new world. Like It's like another dimension. You know, what is the spiritual world? What are the spiritual laws that affect us? And so as we become believers in the Messiah, we're born in the Spirit of God, we begin to learn there is this spiritual world. And I'm not talking about craziness. I'm talking about real deep wisdom, deep understanding, a real perspective of who you are and how did we get here and where are we going. The average person that doesn't know the Lord does not have a beginning and he doesn't have an end. But all the people that belong to the Lord, they know where they come from, and they know where they're going. And that's a whole different way of living, you know, than the average person that goes through it. Um, we obviously believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. But it's a little bit different reason for us 
than it is for, say, a lot of other previous Christians about it. I will tell you flatly and point out, Christians presume he is the Messiah. They presume it. They heard other people say it, and they say, okay, I guess I'll accept that. They've heard hearsay. People say he's the Messiah. Okay, I'll go along with it. By the way, that guy, he probably knows more than me, so I'll go ahead and believe it. Only the problem is hearsay and presumption is not faith. And we're saved by faith. Not by hearsay, not by presumption. And that's the reason why a lot of people, when they get into their spiritual walk, if they believe by hearsay and presumption, all of a sudden when something happens in their life, their faith doesn't work. They call on the Lord, they, they don't hear the Lord answer. They don't know the Lord yet. The Lord doesn't know them. And one of the keys that we need to learn about faith is the law, the commandments of God teaches about it. The first one is Abraham. Abraham's faith was counted for righteousness. And all spiritual truths and the relationship with God begins from Abraham and extends all the way up through the Messiah. And that's the reason why Paul, who writes a very theological argument in the book of Romans, is always referring to Abraham. It's the basis of it. Uh, short, quick teaching. Theological teaching. What are we about? Faith is counter for righteousness. Righteousness has kissed justice. Justice demands sacrifice, and with sacrifice you receive salvation. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, the short version is you're saved by faith, by the grace of God. That's just the abbreviated version of what has been taught. So, as a result, a lot of people, a lot of Christians come into our camp and they're first being introduced to this. They're going, well, what, you know, they have no concept of what righteousness is, what justice is, and what sacrifice is. They, they don't have that full teaching yet. They just have, well, grace and and uh, and faith and and you have salvation but when you sit down and examine and this is the part that scares me when I sit down with um, other folks and they we get an opportunity to talk they cannot give me a definition for faith they can't give me a definition for salvation they can't give me a definition for righteousness or justice or any of these things which are central to our faith they have no concept of what the Bible actually teaches. So guess what we teach? We teach the law of Moses, which teaches all of those things, which it gives you a definition. And then once you get all those basic terms and definitions going and you get it operating in your life, all of a sudden you call on the Lord and you get the same relationship Abraham had where he would call upon the Lord and the Lord would say, here I am, Abraham. Of course, that relationship to have that work when he calls on you, you have to answer and say, here I am, Lord, too. You know, if you had a relationship with somebody and, you know, he was always calling you up and asking things of you, but every time you call him, he didn't respond to you. How, what kind of relationship is that? You know, it works both ways. And the same thing is with the Lord with us. It works both ways. We can call upon him, he'll answer. But that means when he calls upon us, we need to answer, too. And by the way, he's given us a set of instructions to live, you know, and prosper and be successful. If you follow him, you get the blessings. If you don't follow him, you get the curses. And it's the same thing that I told my son when he was growing up. A son, obey my voice and you will get the blessings. Disobey my voice you get the curses. It's a pretty simple concept. However, we have a lot of folks running around and say, well, I don't have to obey the Lord. I'm saved by grace. By me sinning, I'm going to make grace even bigger. Well, you know what Paul thought about that? God forbid that you should do such a thing. That's ridiculous. So, I don't keep the commandments... Uh, so that I can be saved. I'm saved by faith, and I'm saved by the Messiah's sacrifice, and he paid the price, and he's given me the free gift of it. 
So why do I obey? To get the blessings. To live and prosper and increase. That's all taught to us by Abraham. When Abraham took Isaac up to offer him up, the Lord had told him to do it. And then the Lord stopped him from slaying. You know what he said to him? He said, now I see, Abraham, that you will obey my voice. Therefore, will I bless you? And the Lord has the right to test and measure you and see if you'll obey him. Ask yourself the question. You know, we got a nice group out here for the Feast of Tabernacles. This is one of the commanded feasts of the people who believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Where are the rest of the Christian brethren? Where are the rest? They're not here. And they're not keeping this feast. So what are they doing? Well, they're following the teaching they've been given. The teaching of men. And that's where the rub comes in. And that's the reason why this has such an interesting dynamic. Because for the first time, we're teaching people, listen to what the Lord said, learn what the Lord said, give it a try. See what happens. See how it would be different. And so, for the new folks that are coming in, a lot of them have a testimony of faith of the Messiah. They've heard about it. But what they haven't what they haven't seen is where we actually listen to what the Lord said and we believe what the Lord said and we do what the Lord said. And keeping this feast is one of those simple commandments. They're not grievous. We keep the commandments. We actually have fun. It's enjoyable. It's good. Um, you know how families are all breaking apart these days and everybody's separated and scattered and so forth? Psychologists tell us that the number one thing that you as a family can do to bond together is go camping. The Lord knew that a long time ago. It, sometimes it's that simple. Sometimes it's just that simple. Amen. Oh, question over here. Uh, so the question has to do with the, the theory of that uh, oil and fossil fuel products is a result of uh, the creatures and the vegetation that used to exist before the flood. And the question is, uh, are we unclean uh, if we come into contact with us? Well, I can tell you that petroleum products are dangerous for you to eat, and you definitely need to wash up afterwards before you try to go eat. You know, so from the standpoint of is it, is it going to give you life, is it like a, an edible thing that you can internalize? No. But you can build products off of it that are of great benefit. Everything that the Lord has created in the, in, in the earth here has some potential positive benefit. We just are learning about what it is. Now we're into a different concept. You're talking about if we touch a dead body, now we're into a different concept. Okay, so let me answer that question. First and foremost, the Lord says to us uh, that the earth is good and that he's blessed it. But when it comes to a dead person, a person that dies, God emphatically teaches, I am not the God of the dead. I'm the God of the living. And he takes that all the way to the point of once your mortal body has passed, there's still something in you that's still living, your spirit and your soul. And I'm still the God of you, and you're still alive. And, but there is a proper way to deal with all of the things. You do, of course, know that a dead body is like the most dangerous thing that you can have in the camp. The ability to, to, to have disease that comes from that is just unbelievable. And there's a reason why they do it. It's for the cleanliness and the safety of the camp, to maintain the cleanliness of the camp. You know, the latrines, it's essential 
that we keep the camp clean because that's where disease comes from. The Lord has told us that. I don't know if you know this, but I'm a kind of a World War II history buff. You know how the British defeated the Germans in North Africa in World War II? With a shovel. The Germans would just go over the sand dune and go do their business. They didn't dig latrines. And the flies got on, the, um, on what they did. And then the flies flew over and got on their food. And the reason why the German army could not operate there in North Africa is because about two-thirds of them had dysentery. They could barely stand up. And they were sick. And one of the things the Lord has taught us is basic commandments of how we live with one another, that we shall keep the camp clean. And part of the cleanliness of the camp is that we dispose of a dead body properly. We dispose of it just like we would do any other unclean matter because it's going to harm us if we don't deal with it correctly. Now, as far as fossil fuels and petroleum and all that, it's so decomposed, it's really part of the earth now. I mean, dirt, if you pick up dirt, it doesn't hurt you. Don't eat it, but, you know, it doesn't hurt you. Uh, we can work with the same thing with petroleum. Question over here. Okay, so the question is about burial and whether or not actual physical burial, whether uh, um, cremation is used. Well, let me just say right off the bat, culturally, uh, there is nothing in the Bible that specifies a particular methodology that has to be used. It, what it is left up to is what is the culture of that particular place or people. If you're ashes and you go back to the earth, or whether your body is put in the ground and decomposes, it all goes back to the earth. You know, all of, the, all of it goes back to the earth. So we're being returned to the earth. This is the elements that, that made our mortal body, you know, to begin with. So that's, that's the concept. Just give it back to the earth as it was given to you. Um, but as far as with, with a proper burial, depending on certain cultures, um, for example, Jews, and this is still culture today, you get buried the day you die. If I get up here and at uh, 9.40 and I die, uh, and we're in a purely Jewish culture, the family's going to come and we're going to load me up and get me in a pine box and get me in the dirt before the sun sets. Now then they're going to spend a week in a shiva, you know, mourning, you know, my loss uh, for it. But that's the way we do it. And pioneer, by the way, we have a pioneer law uh, here in Oklahoma that if you die here, uh, you don't have to go through embalmment and funeral thing and all that. You can be, you know, if you're buried promptly, you know, you can be buried that way. Um, the funeral industry has really gotten involved in this, you know, uh, pass some laws, you know, for people that you have to follow, can't carry, can't transport bodies, all kinds of stuff. But in the natural order of things, um, it, it's just a simple process. But the, one of the keys is that uh, the Bible taught that if you come into contact with a dead body, let's say you're burying someone, that you are ritually unclean for at least seven days. Do not go to the temple. Do not go to the altar of the Lord. You wait. And that's where the Shiva comes from. You mourn, you get that business done first before you come and try to do business with me. That's the higher priority. And, we, you know, the Lord says that the death of his saints is precious in his eyes. So it's a very tender time. He recognizes it. And um, we have to adjust to the loss. And there's a, a right and proper and respectable way to do it. All right. So I've read the book and studied the scriptures, and I understand the basic scenario. I understand the what, that there's going to be in gathering, that's similar to the first 
Right. So the question is about the greater exodus, and you're asking specifically the how question. How do we do this? How do we make it through the three and a half years, the time of the journey of the, and uh, so forth? Um, what we're talking about when we're talking about the greater exodus and the lessons that was learned from Israel leaving Egypt. You know, they went into a place where there was no food and water. And that's one of the first questions that we need to ask. It's, okay, we're going to go on the greater exodus. What are we going to drink? What are we going to eat? And by the way, there's none of you with your trailer that can pack up enough food and water to go three and a half years. None of you. Um, you know, I, as I've shared with other audiences, um, I used to be a military logistician. And one of the things I used to do was counsel the government on how to pre-stage certain things so that for a particular mission, uh, you know, that they, they could continue to maintain even though they've lost all support from other places. At the top of my game, if I had unlimited funds with the government, I can get you 18 months. The government doesn't work to that. They can't afford that. They work to six months. The government has resources and so forth, stocks, to supply them for six months without no support whatsoever. Then they have to reemerge and reconstitute the country and so forth. Um, we don't have the resources of the federal government of the richest country in the world. It's just you and me. Go back and look at the historical story their food and all the stuff they brought for them to help them, it ran out in the first month. So what happened? How in the world did they make it? The big how question. Let's see. If I understand this camp, being a military logistician, uh, just on firewood, they would have needed to train a mile and a half long, fully loaded boxcars of firewood just to have enough wood for each day. They would have needed a mile-long uh, train with 8,000-gallon tankers just for the water they're going to use in one day. Another train, a mile long, just to carry the manna they were going to eat in one day. They did this for 40 years. Explain to me how that happened. If we had to plan this right now as men, as logisticians, we, we couldn't do that. We could not even approach the problem. So how did they do it? Because the testimony is they made it. Well, God made water come out of the rock. He uh, made manna appear as the dew in the morning. He fed them daily. The, somehow, they had no problem with the fire. He took care of it. And on top of that, they built a tabernacle out there in the midst of the wilderness and uh, lived and prospered, bore children. And the original crew that left Egypt, they died. They didn't make it in, but their kids did. And it was that they did not diminish in their numbers. So how in the world did that happen? Well, that's about as big a miracle as it was when they crossed the Red Sea, for crying out loud. If you really stop and think about it. Now, this is the God we serve. This is who he says I am. And this is the God, so the first words he spoke on Mount Sinai. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Not only did I bring you out and take care of you, but I also transformed you into a new people and a nation. Let me just stop with that, but think about that for a moment. That's impressive. That is incredibly impressive. No people in the world has been able to do any such thing. In fact, he asks the question, Name another people have heard the voice of God and are still alive. Wow. And by the way, this is the God we serve. Now, he's apparently, for most of us, he's been kind of idle and quiet for as long as we can kind of remember. You know, because we've been enjoying the redemption and the, and the work that the Messiah came. But when we come to the end of the ages and we're talking about this greater exodus, guess who's the God who's going to be taking us? That same one that did that thing out of Egypt. That God. He's the guy. 
So if he can do the Red Sea thing and take care of those people out there for 40 years, I don't think he's going to have a problem for three and a half years. It's just going to be a lot more people. No, no, I don't think there'll be, no. No, I think that, no, the scripture is very simple on this. It says that we will go into the wilderness of the peoples. This is Ezekiel 21. And the wilderness of the people, what's the definition? You get out of the cities in whatever country you're in, and you go into the countryside. What we call the country is called the wilderness in, in um, the Bible. And so we are simply going to get out of the cities. Why do we want to get out of the cities? Because in the cities is where death is going to be. Disease. The sword. Anarchy. There's nothing safe. Everybody's killing each other for crying out loud. We've got to get out of that. got to get safe from that. got to get separate from that. And uh, by the way, uh, it, this isn't such a brand new concept to all the people that aren't even believers who are fearful of things coming. You know, they're all building bunkers. They're all digging holes in the earth using old missile silos. They're stockpiling stuff. They think that the way is to get out of the cities, to get out of it, and then go to a fixed place where you've got everything stocked up. They have a three-and-a-half-year problem. You can't take it with you. You can't store enough stuff up. I'm telling you, you're going to run out. Then what are you going to do? And furthermore, those guys that are building those little underground bunkers, dumbest thing you could possibly do. When those guys come and want to steal your food, you know what they have to do to get you? All they have to do is put one explosive charge on the door of your bunker. That one blast will put enough compression inside of the bunker that it will kill you instantly. It'll kill you right now. That is not safety. And we're going to have a lot of nasty people running around. We refer to them as Amalek. And just like the children of Israel, they had to deal with raiders and bandits in the wilderness that came. And, and we'll have to be prepared for that. That's the reason why we have the positive commandment um, in the scripture that says, The sons of Israel in every generation shall kill the sons of Amalek on sight. Because we ain't going to be fooling around this time. Now, there's four elements of survival. And these are the... You've got to have water. You've got to have food. You've got to have shelter. And you have to have some way to defend yourself. You are here at the Feast of Tabernacles learning how to set up your shelter. Because God says, I'm not going to supply your sukkah. You have to supply that. You have to learn how to set up your tent, your tabernacle... Your shelter to protect you from the basic elements. That's the reason why we're being trained to do this. But he promises us the water. He promises us the food. And you're going to love this. He promises to defend us. So out of those four elements, you're here at the Feast of Tabernacles to learn how to set up your sukkah. And make it work. By the way, you come here a couple of years, you do your sukkah, and you learn a lot. I noticed there's some new folks that came here, and after it had been raining and so forth, they're drying their tent out and uh, drying out all their clothes and, and their sleeping bags and all that kind of stuff. That's, the, that's a better lesson than anything I could set up here and tell you about how to set up your sukkah, right? You will learn in a great big hurry, you know. And that's part of what this is about, to learn how to do that. Does that help answer your question on the how? Question over here, sir. Exactly. Well, and by the way, you know, the question that he's raising is about even planning. You still have to trust God. Amen and amen. Uh, because um, weird things happen when you get in the environment. The strange things happen, and it wasn't what you had planned for. And you've got to be light on your feet and prepared to to make the transition and, and work through it and so forth. And a lot of people will they'll come and, and they'll get their tent all set up, and then a windstorm comes along and knocks it over. Well, I didn't think about the wind. They didn't say anything about that in Walmart when I was buying the tent. 
The first year we were out here, I'm not making this up. First year we were out here, I know the guy personally. He set up a tent, and uh, it was the first time he'd ever, I guess, really done it. And we had a little brisk wind that day. It picked that tent up and threw it right out in the lake. And I walked up to him and I said, do you have any stakes that went with that tent? He said, yeah, I was in there, but I didn't think I'd need them. <laughs> oh, you're learning. There's a reason they put those stakes in with the tent. Or the one that I saw where it rained. Brand new tent, rain, and the guy was just like beside himself. That's a brand new tent, and it just leaked like a sieve on us. And I said, you know that little bottle that came in the tent called Seam Sealer? Did you use any of that? No, I, yeah, I, I figured it wasn't going to rain, so I, I didn't put that on there. <laughs> yeah, but it did rain, didn't it? And that tent just leaked like mad. Well, part of the experience, by the way, let me go ahead and tell you something about me. Don't ever walk up to me and ask me if I'm ready. If we're getting ready to do something. Are you ready for sun? Are you ready for Sabbath? Are you ready for tonight's program? And I always will correct you and I say, I never say I'm ready. The moment I say I'm ready, God is going to show me how I'm not ready. <laughs> what I say is I'm open to whatever the Lord wants to do. I'm going to go with the flow. And that's an attitude of humility. And that's the way we should approach. We do not have the solutions. What we're going to do is we're going to work the problem together. And in working the problem, that's where the success will come. Now, mind you, going out and camping by yourself, trying to go through this journey by yourself, is going to be pretty tough. In fact, I don't think you'll make it. However, if you're with a whole group of people with differing levels of expertise, you know, you, you will receive encouragement. Some people will come over and solve your problem that you didn't know how to solve. You know, and here in this camp, um, one of the things that we set up, the camp services guys, you know, I don't know if you know that, but that's a team of experts, and all they do is go around every day solving problems for people. You know, help you with your tent, whatever's broke. You know, if we get a gas line, they're down there fixing it. If this, it's, it, you know, if the... Um, the the latrine thing doesn't work. They're fixing it. They're getting it done so that the camp is supported. You know, buy it. That's a backfire on a golf cart. If that had been a real gunshot, there's about 50 guys who would have had guns out ready to go. <laughs> um, so the, the one one of the things I I kind of want to say about all of this. The Lord tells us that the wise prepare. We do prepare. And you need to learn how to prepare. Prepare for you. Prepare for your family. Even think about how you might be helpful to some other brethren too. Even go that far. But let's be honest. The only thing, the only reason why we're going to get saved is because the Lord decides to save us. That is the only way we're going to make it. And I think that's crucial to preparing us to be saints in the kingdom. It's crucial that we learn it's not by our strength. It's not by our wisdom. There is nobody going to be standing in the kingdom, standing and say, Well, I did everything right. I followed Monty's tribulation handbook. I got it all squared away, and I made it. I can assure you there will be nobody saying that. Um... I can guarantee you that everybody will be saying, the Lord saved me. He delivered me. And I was able to escape by his hand, just like the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. Amen? Another question. Yes, in the back. Uh, <laughs> so the question is, you go through all these different things of life and you suffer loss and other kinds of things. And so the question is, how do we get through that correctly? Well, it's really that I guess I would put that that's really the wisdom of the ages. 
it's the older people that can tell you you'll make it, you know, because they've gone through so much and they can offer the counsel for that. That's the reason why you want the aged with you, uh, you know, to be a part of it, because they've gone through thick and thin and rough and tough and, and they're still here. And you need that encouragement. You need to maintain hope. You know, a lot of people will suffer the first loss and they just give up. you got to have other people that can encourage and, and keep the hope going uh, so that you can weather through it and, and endure it. Um, quite honestly, guys, you know, the, the world we live in right now, with all the conveniences that we have, we don't have it tough. You know, go over to Syria. You want to see tough? Where they got nothing. They don't know whether they're going to be alive next week. And they're still trying to keep going. Um, it's not going to get that tough. It's going to get tough. You're going to be challenged. You're going to be like our ancestors. They're, you know, they left Egypt. And they're going to get out there in the wilderness. And all of a sudden, well, I don't have the same things I used to have. We don't have the free fish that we used to get. And we don't have leeks and, and melons like we had before. And you guys, it'll be a little different. You'll be good. We don't have McDonald's anymore. And <laughs> it wasn't that tough then, and it won't be that tough for us. But the how, how is it that we're able to overcome it? We obviously have to have a, see a bigger thing greater than that. We have to believe that we're a people that's not subject to those things. One of the things that God emphatically tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 8, He said, I suffered you to be thirsty. I suffered you to be hungry. Okay? And I did so so that I could prove to you that a man does not live by bread alone, but a man lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's how you live. Um, and it comes down to where your faith becomes the guiding thing. If for a moment, let, indulge me for just a moment, let me give you just a little piece of my testimony. Before I started Lion and Lamb Ministries... I had, I had a very successful technical career. And this is back, you know, 22 years ago, 23 years ago. My income was uh, six figures. That was my income. My wife never had to work when I was working. I made enough money to cover us all. Um, when I left my job, I was being contacted to be, one, a consultant. And in those days, uh, consultants that I would be running around with, we'd make $300,000 a year, work six months a year. That was back then. Okay. Um, and I turned down offers to go start companies. And I, you know, I could have easily been a multimillionaire very easily. I, I, was, I, I broke through the glass ceiling. I was going to be making the determination, which company do I want to be a part of and who I want to team with and we'll build this and we'll make a fortune. I, I was there. But then God got a hold of me and said, I want you to go to work for me. So when I walked away from that into zero, now how did I do that? Because I believe that God was bigger than the whole world. But I will tell you what was my first quiet time the day I made that decision. I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, I'm praying, I'm talking to the Lord. And I said, Lord, my children, my children deserve a father that will go to work and provide for them. And the Lord, all I can tell you is this, I've shared this testimony before. The Lord just hauled off and just slapped me in the cheek. I mean, I... I was jolted. And the Lord just clears the bell, said to me, said, Monty, I've been taking care of your children from before they were born. Oh, that's right, Lord. It, I, I thought it was me, but it was really you, right? I mean, you were really the one that was taking it. You were the one that provided me the job. I, I got it. Okay, so I know you're still on the job, and I know we're going to be fine. And I'm here to testify to you 
22 years later, I've never been in need. I've never been in need. And the reason I got all that training beforehand was so I would be able to lead an organization of the size of this one. He gave me training to teach me how to do this, you know, at this size. And uh, that was crucial. I, I needed that training to be able to be successful. The, um, and so my confidence in the Lord is now, you know, before I had the faith to believe the ancient stories. But now I have the ancient stories and I have my own life experience. And one of the things I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, don't have me go out and teach something to the people and say something to the people. You don't have me already believe it. Because if I don't believe it and I go out and say something to you, you people are smart enough to see right through me and any other teacher that would do such a thing. And as I've shared with a lot of audiences, um, you may not believe what I believe, but you better believe that I believe it. And I do. I really do believe it. Uh, I believe that the Lord is able and capable and actually has the intent to do it. And that we can rest in that, have confidence in that, and we'll press on and it's all going to work out just fine and we're all going to make it to the kingdom. Okay. All right. So the subject is about recent astrological and astronomical signs that we've seen, the whole concept of God's plan at the end and, and things like that. Okay. One of, and in fact, I just wrote this article that's in the October Yavo, the, the Yavo that's in the marketplace for this month. It's called the Parable of Anticipation. And let me just tell you that in the scriptures, there's two different levels People call this prophecy, we all lump it together, but there's two distinct parts of what God has given to us. One is he's given us some, an, some, some instruction on, um, here I got the wrong, I got one of these. Something we call anticipation. And then we have another set of scriptures, which is the plan of the end. Those are two different concepts. What the Lord did, for example, is he said in the parable of anticipation, he said there is a master who has servants. And he goes away on a long journey. And he's going to be coming back, but we're not sure when he's coming back. And he talks about how the faithful servants are the ones waiting for him at the gate. They're being the watchmen. They're looking for the master return. And when the master returns, they're ready for him to return. But then he talks about another group of servants who go say, oh, our master's on a long journey. He's not going to be coming back for a long time. Let's go ahead and go in the house, get drunk, goof off, not do what we're supposed to be doing. And he talks about how the master returns. And there will be justice. The servant that was obeying. And anticipating his return is rewarded. The servant who was goofing off, he suffers loss. And so that's called the parable of anticipation. So what is the lesson that he's really trying to teach to us? Regardless of how long I've gone, you should be anticipating and remaining diligent. So, in fact, he actually uses this phrase, that servant who is sensible and wise. And so the whole concept of the coming of the Lord, he calls upon us, I want you to be sensible. I want you to be sober. I want you to be wise. I want you to always remember that I said I was coming back, and you remember that every time. You do not lose part of that. You don't start making false judgments about him and what he's going to be doing. But then there's a whole other set of prophecies that talk about the plan 
And for example, uh, when God talks about the creation story, and he gives us the, the seven days of creation, and he says that I'm the Lord God, I'm the only one that can tell you the end from the beginning. And it turns out that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, a thousand years is one day, and the days of creation is a future prophecy of 6,000 years, and that's the reason why all biblical scholars are absolutely trying to figure out when is the biblical year 6,000. Because the kingdom, the Sabbath, the millennia, is the messianic kingdom. And that's the reason why in this particular day, as opposed to all the previous generations who were looking for the Lord to come and all the various things, is that Bible chronology study of how many years have gone by. What is the testimony of the years? And you and I are sitting in the zone of all of the best Bible chronologists say it's somewhere with us at the moment. The earliest was 1994 for that study. The latest is, are you ready for this? <laughs> 2017. Now, what does that prophecy tell us? That tells us there's a very good chance we're the last generation. So if we are, and by the way, the way Peter said to us, remember this one fact, brethren. And you're to use that and remember that to counter the mockers who are saying, where is the promise of his coming? Everything goes on as before. It's, it's really fascinating the day we live in. We have all kinds of different explanations. There's a, a sense of anticipation. There's mockers. So how do we sort all that? How are we supposed to be the sensible and wise servant of the Lord? Well, we have to take all this into account. We have to come to terms with this. Now, the wise prepare. Uh, there's just all kinds of verses I could give you on that one. But suffice it to say, I think you already know that. Um, then the rest of the plan gets down to some specifics about the last, the last set of years. And we come to what the Messiah gave when he gave the answer to his disciples, what will be the sign of the end and what will be the sign of your coming? Because the signs of the end tells us when we're coming to the last generation and the signs of your coming is specific. When do you actually come back? So the signs of the end, he started right off by saying uh, it, the signs of the end are not what you would think would be the signs of the end. It's not wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and so on. He said, that's, those are sorrows that happen in the world, but that's not the end yet. And guess what everybody jumps on for, oh, I guess the Lord's about to be here. You know, look, look, we're having earthquakes and terrible things are happening in the earth and so on. All those are is signs that tells you you're coming toward the end. It's the beginning of sorrows. That's all it is. Signs in the heavens, blood, moons. We know the Lord says there shall be blood, moons, and the darkening of the sun, and so forth, before the great and terrible day of the Lord. That's all it's saying. You're going to see this stuff coming. This is going to be very compelling stuff. It's going to really reach down and grab you and, and so forth. He said, just go in the flow, anticipate me coming, recognize what there was. But that's not the end. So let's get to the specifics. What is the end? What is he specifically referring to? He answers this in Matthew 24. And he says it's a prophecy in Daniel. And it has to do with the abomination of desolation. So what in the world is that? Well, let me give you the specifics. It says there's going to be an altar operating in Jerusalem that the priests are going to be doing the daily sacrifice, the early and morning lambs. That's a very specific commanded sacrifice. We call it the Tamid offering. And he says there's going to come a day when either that morning or the evening sacrifice is stopped. And when it's... Okay, yes, I got you. And um, 
the day that happens, you can start counting right now 1,290 days of great tribulation. Great tribulation for 1,290 days. That's what Daniel said. And Yeshua, referring to that, said, And in the days immediately after the tribulation of those days, you will then see me coming. You will see the sign of the Son of Man in the clouds of heaven coming. Now, that's not instantaneously he comes. You will actually see him coming through the universe. And oh, by the way, at that particular point in the world, the world is utterly terrorized. It says the heathen will be going into the holes of the earth, begging for the rocks and the mountains to collapse upon them. But you and I, we're told, lift our heads high for our redemption is drawing near. Now, I'm telling you right now, guys, that the, um, uh, the movie makers, you know, Steven Spielberg, he's never come up with anything close to this. And... Um, and those are the basic elements. Now, there's a whole bunch of other prophecies that fit into it. It talks about the Antichrist and when he comes. It talks about the two witnesses. It talks about the ministry of the 144,000. talks about us, the tribulation saints, what we're going to do. It talks about what the world's going to do. It talks about a whole series of judgments that will fall upon the earth as God is provoking the rest of the world to see if they'll turn to him in the last days until the day of atonement, the day of the Lord comes when he... It's a day of reconciliation, and it's over. It is done. Now, here's the fascinating part from the study of the plan. It mimics exactly the plan of what God did when he brought Israel out of Egypt. So if you want to have a real kind of sense of how is this thing going to work, go back and study the great story of when God redeemed his people and brought them out of Egypt. You know, see, guys, the, the whole Egyptian Exodus story is a giant prophecy. It's really explaining to God the plan of how God delivered his people. And there's a lot of details to it, a lot of specifics. And a lot of people, when they go and they study this, they don't quite gather all of the evidence. They get some piece of evidence and they lock onto it and that's what produces the confusion and the frustration of it. And you know, it's like the, the three blind men checking out the elephant. And you get three different versions of what an elephant is. When we all know have the wisdom, if we would just gather all the evidence and consider all the things that are said and, and, and lay them all down, let's look at them all, a very clear picture emerges. I want to tell you how to understand the book of Revelation. I can give you a word picture to understand the whole book. Let's say that you want to attend a concert one night, and they've got all the chairs set up and all the orchestra is going to be playing, and the conductor takes you, and before the musician's there, before the concert is, he says, let me tell you about the concert we're going to play, and follow me, and you walk over with me, and he said, this is the section where the violins are going to sit. And this is the music the violins are going to play. Now let's go back here to the percussion. Here's the kettle drums, here's the chimes, here's the bells, here's the drums. That's where the percussion will be at. And then we go over here and here's all the woodwind instruments. This is the clarinets and the oboes and so forth. And over here, this is the brass section, trumpets and trombones and sousaphones and over here and so forth. And then you got the big bass, you know, string instruments and so forth. And then back there, that's where the choir stands. So when we do this performance, you would know from that that when the concert happens, it's not that the violins play first and then they quit and then the drums play and they quit and then those guys play and they quit and those guys play and they quit. And those... No, you would have the sense to know these guys are all going to be playing together. It's going to be a symphony. And there will be moments when individual instruments are playing, but it all blends into, and oh, by the way, at the end of this thing, at the climax, it could be everybody is singing and everybody's playing at the same time. That is exactly what was done with John when he was shown the end time prophecy of the Great Trip. 
He simply was walked around to all the different judgments. But that's not the sequence of the judgments. They're all going to be playing together. They're all going to be happening. But he's laid it all out so that we can, um, we can understand it. So you step back from it. You've got to absorb all the information. You've got to step back and listen to the music. Listen to them all play. And that's one of the keys to understanding the end time prophecies. Absorb all of it and let it play out before you. Don't get hung up on one particular prophecy or the other. Don't be like the blind men with the elephant. You know, see the whole elephant. That's, that's the keys to doing it. Now, let me just go ahead and tell you, there's not a lot of men, a lot of people, that are willing to spend the energy to learn all the prophecies. Because the first prophecy you have to learn is from Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. You have to start there. You know, to learn all of this. Now, is it possible? It sure enough is. It sure enough is. But you've got to take it all in, not just part of it. Not just part of it. Amen? All right, we, we have run out of time. We've got to get out of here so our next workshop speaker can come. And what you got one real quick one? All right, I'll, I'll step outside over here in the shade. We'll clear this, and I'll stand over there if we want to do something. All right, so word of prayer, we'll close, and let uh, our new brethren come in and teach our workshop. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you again for the warm fellowship and the interest in your things. And Lord, I ask by your Holy Spirit, you know, take that kindling of fire and interest in you and turn it into a fire that goes on their altar of their own heart. And so that it burns hot and is ready to receive uh, the sacrifices and praises of the heart. And I thank you, Lord, for the fellowship of these brethren. I thank you, Lord, for their attendance in the camp. May our day be good, Lord. And we thank you for your new mercies for this day. In Yeshua's name, amen. amen.